do I not like that? It's another wretched night for England at a major tournament. Nice to see home fans booing you. Beardsley looking very lively. What a lovely first time ball. Lineker far side. Coming in on it. No! Magnificent goal! Welcome to Magnificent Goal. I'm Stephen Topless, and this is the podcast that takes a deep dive through the history of the England football team. Last time out, we talked about the history of England versus Scotland. Do check that one out if you haven't already. But this week, we're going to look back at some memorable England debuts. Not of any players, but the men that managed them. There have been 15 England managers since the post was created. 19, if you count caretakers, with Gareth Southgate, the current boss. So Walter Winterbottom was the first in 1946, And since then, the position of England manager has become one of the most famous and most scrutinised jobs in the country. It's a role that comes with high pressure and expectation, both from the fans and the media. And it's these factors which have led to it being described as the impossible job. The England manager's position has even been compared in its cultural importance to the job of prime minister. In this episode of Magnificent Goal, we're picking out some of the most memorable England managerial debuts. Joining us again is Glenn Isherwood from England Football Online. Hello, Glenn. Hello there. And from EnglandStats.com, it's Davey Naylor. Welcome back, Davey. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Glenn. So, chaps, to start with, if I was to ask you both to sum up the England manager's job in a sentence, what would you say? Well, probably the impossible job is uh, quite often that that seems to be an apt uh, name for it. But I would say, looking at it from the FA's point of view, that the England manager should be a role model and a figurehead for the FA. Uh, results are obviously important, but I don't believe they're as important to the FA as that uh, figurehead state. That's interesting, Glenn. Yeah, because. Um... I was going to pick up on the same point. I, I'm not so sure now, though. I, I now in, in in previous years, definitely. Uh, I mean, we we will probably go on to touch on a, 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 on some people who were like like um, Brian Clough, who surely should have been England manager at some point. But I think the FA, the fusty old men smoking pipes in their uh, committee rooms would never have allowed people like Brian Clough to become England manager. He just wasn't the type. So, um, yes, you're right. Absolutely. What 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 the FA thought of an England manager um, and what the public thought of an England manager were very much two different things. Whether that's changed or not nowadays, I think um, the press have a lot to say. Uh, Fleet Street were um, instrumental in the uh, sacking of and the opinion of uh, a few England managers, and absolutely, Glenn's right. It is the impossible job. They say it's the second hardest job in England. I, I, I disagree. I think it's the hardest job in England. Now, the, the, Rishi <laughs> Sunak has got nothing on the England manager. So I think Gareth Southgate uh, is actually ideal 
for the FA at the moment. Uh, he's worked within the FA. He was head of their elite development uh, initially. So he, so he became familiar with uh, all the FA's internal communications, which I think would be very important to them. And that was all before he became the under-21s manager. So he knows the FA from top to bottom and he's made decisions on behalf of the FA. He, he's got to be completely ideal for what, for what they want. Whether they go for somebody else like that, if there is another person, uh, I'm not sure once Southgate leaves or whether they just go back to the old policy of uh, a successful English manager. And also, I, th- I, would, I would argue that, that in his private life, and this is a big advantage for Southgate, that he does nothing in his private life, which warrants the uh, red top newspapers, Fleet Street, to actually think that we can try and tear this guy down. Poor old Sven had uh, smeared his private life all over the, 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 the back pages and sometimes the front pages of newspapers. He's, Southgate is very boring, and that might be a really good thing. I mean, you know, we, we we can question some of his tactical choices. We can question some some of his um, um, uh, player choices. But you know, one thing that the FA will be very glad for is that Gareth Southgate is not another story other than his football and his managerial thing. And that's something which we've not always had in the past. When you think about Venables, you think about uh, Gra- uh, Graham Taylor. You th- definitely think about Sven. Um, and he's and he's got a knack of winning, I guess. I mean, okay, we've not won anything yet, but you know, he's done a lot better than any of the other uh, since Ramsey, I guess, because um, he's the only one who actually won anything. Um, so you could say that you know, as long as you're winning, you're doing a good job. And I think his statesman side really has endeared him to people of all generations. You've got, you know, the. Older fans, younger fans really have have taken to Southgate as a person. And whatever you think of his tactics or his approach sometimes in games, you can't question the guy's integrity and the way that he has really become a figurehead in the England job. And it's as we'll probably discover as we go through this list, it's it's quite nice to have a bit of boring in the uh, in the manager's position. No offense to Gareth, of course, because I'm a big fan. But me it, too, me too, absolutely, I agree with you. No, no offense completely, but you know that's what we need right now. We need to con- concentrate on the football, and mm. and it also helps, uh, as I just said, that you know the football is tends to be rather good at the moment. I mean, there are many many years, uh, not just in my lifetime, but previous to that, where the football wasn't so good. So it's always the manager that gets it in the neck. Of course it is. I mean, it's their job after all. So um, yeah, um, you know, you, you you know, make hay while the sun shines. I guess. They've certainly stumbled on the uh, the ideal combination uh, and it's worked. And they did stumble on it after Allardyce was appointed and Southgate nipped in there. But uh, yeah, it's it's worked. It's worked brilliantly. And the, uh, the alternate all... universe of Allardyce still well, in charge just, of the England team. That's a whole different episode in itself. I, I was <laughs> just going to say, all thanks to a pint of wine. So the appointment of a new England manager, it brings with it plenty of interest and speculation historically debates over who the new man will pick what changes they'll make to the team the style of football they're going to play the England manager has sole responsibility for all on-field elements of the team including selecting the squad the starting 11 choosing a captain tactics and the substitutes but it wasn't always like this 
Glenn, can you explain what things looked like before 1946 and before Sir Walter Winterbottom became the first England manager in name? Well, yes, we have a lot to thank Walter Winterbottom for in laying down the foundations of an England team manager, because before that, it was the dreaded International Selection Committee that they had actually right from the beginning in 1872, though I think Charles Alcott was mainly picking the team then. In 1888, it uh, became a more formal uh, thing. Uh, and that that ran right through up until 1963, when Alf Ramsey took over. And it was a horrible uh, meeting of 14 people uh, between the wars, uh, all amateur selectors, uh, no continuity, as we we mentioned on the on the previous podcast. When it came to uh, the Second World War, the selection committee uh, stepped back and it was Stanley Rouse, who was the secretary of the FA at the time, who picked the team. And I think it's no coincidence that England were very successful during the war years. They were also helped by the stationing of more players in England than in Scotland and Wales. Uh, and I think that that probably helped. They've scored quite a few goals against Scotland uh, and the likes of Mercer and Tommy Lawton uh, had a great time. Davey, what was the main things that prompted the FA to change the way that things had been done and ultimately appoint an England team manager? Well, they had um, coaches for uh, overseas tours. This this was, was going on um, before, prior to the uh, Second World War. Uh, they had uh, various um, uh, people um, conduct um, coaching, and, and, and they were they were understanding that that coaching was an important part of the game, not just in like in the early days where you select a team and they just turned up and they 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 played the tactics that their club played, and it became rather ludicrous, really, because you know different teams would have different tactics, and um, they wouldn't necessarily gel together. Um, so the idea of having someone to oversee that. Now, don't forget, Walter Winterbottom had. Com- when he was appointed, he 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 played for Manchester United. He had a a very career-ending spinal injury in 1938, um, and he got into coaching during the Second World War. He became a physical instructor with the uh, the RAF, um, and he was appointed national director of coaching for not just England but for the you know all the levels down. And he was responsible for an inordinate amount of stuff that you wouldn't even think that the uh, England coach would be, England manager would be responsible for. He, he controlled every aspect of the international scene from training, coaching schemes, booking accommodation, meals, uh, travel. He, he, he was the tour booker. He booked the travel on the boat when you'd go off to the World Cup in 1950. Uh, he, he he booked all of that. He did that for four World Cups. He, he did all of that. The one thing that he did not have control of was the most important one, and that was the selection of the team. That still rested with the international, the, the FA Select Committee. So the FA realised that they needed um, some sort of centralised coaching and centralised management of the team. They, they understand that, and they appointed Winterbottom. I believe Winterbottom was one of the Select Committee, I think, as well at that point. So he was well-versed with... Um, 
all the stuff that they needed to do. He'd been a physical instructor in the RAF, so he knew all about the training things. And 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 let's not kid ourselves, the 1940s training is nothing like we have today. Um, it's, you know, it run around for 45 minutes, have an R and orange and have a fag. Uh, but you know, he 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 brought new um it, new techniques into this. He got the players fitter, they had they had uh, away days they kind of like you know went away for a little bit and, and started doing you know proper training and getting proper fitness and just like any just like the clubs at the time uh, in the post-war era they were understanding that fitness was a key factor to playing better football and because he'd been in the RAF he knew all about this and so he's the perfect man to do the job but I guess it was it was it was it was difficult for him because well I don't know I mean might not have been he might have been very happy with his job he 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 was the he's the longest serving England manager he 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 was he 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 started in forty six he didn't resign until nineteen sixty two um, after the sixty two World Cup so he he was there for a considerable amount of time so he must have enjoyed working with with these guys and the role that he had. He's the youngest England manager as well, isn't he? He was 34 at the time of his appointment. And you mentioned it there, Davey. Whilst it wasn't a total overhaul in so much that he he wasn't in charge of picking the squad and the team, it was a move towards the manager's position as we know it today and a move towards modernising the England setup. And Winterbottom was a, a key figure in that. And it's Winterbottom's first game that we're going to look at here. So Saturday, 28th of September, 1946. It's a home international in Belfast, Ireland 2, England 7. And it was also notable, Davey, for being England's first international following the Second World War, some 2,684 days since a 2-0 win over Romania in May 1939. So there were firsts everywhere with this game. There, there, there are, and and only two of those uh, that started that game actually had previous caps. Um, uh, I believe that was um, uh, Tommy Lawton and and Rachel Carter of uh, of Derby, um, who scored remarkably in the first minute. Um, I don't know exact timing of this goal. I don't think anybody does, but it was it's definitely uh, um, down. In, in the annals of, of scoring early doors. And in fact, actually, by within half an hour, they were 3-0 up. Uh, so, yes, as, as managerial debuts go, this is a pretty good one. Winning 7-2 away um, is, is not too bad, I guess. And that England team, there will be some names in here who are familiar and I think you will have heard of, talked about throughout England history. So the goalkeeper, Frank Swift, at right-back, Lawrence Scott, George Hardwick, the left-back, William Wright, or Billy Wright, as he's more commonly known, who went on to become a truly legendary England figure and in football generally in this country and uh, was a long-time captain. Cornelius Franklin, his partner at centre-back. Henry Cockburn, Tom Finney makes his debut and scores. Raish Carter, as you mentioned, Davey. Tommy Lawton up front. Wilf Mannion, who scores a hat-trick in this game on debut and Robert Langton make up the starting 11. An interesting note as well, Stanley Matthews was selected for this starting 11, but he had to withdraw through injury and that's where Tom Finney comes in and makes his debut. And 
the dream start for England. They're they're ahead within a minute, and if you're Walter Winterbottom watching that, that's the that's the perfect start. Glenn, how did Winterbottom set the team up in this game? Was there a, a drastic change to what had come before it with the selection committee and how it was done previously? No, I don't think uh, Winterbottom will have had much of a say uh, in anything at this stage. Uh, I mean, they they lined up in the traditional two three five, uh, and the players, uh, most of them, were familiar with each other. They, they just continued as they'd done before, scoring lots of goals. Uh, Winterbottom. I believe as national director of coaching at this time, uh, they'd said he has not been appointed as England team manager. He will take charge of teams at the discretion of the International Selection Committee, and if so, directed will decide tactics. So I'm guessing that he probably didn't have much input, and he was just responsible for the team. I could buy that completely. Absolutely, they 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 were the VFA were so precious. That selection committee was so precious. Yes. Walter Whittemore, he was he was basically a you could call him a tour manager rather than an England manager. He was the guy that was responsible for everything apart from the the most important thing. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that 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 Stanley Matthews, the Wizard of Dribble, um, was unavailable, and the guy they get to replace him, that the, the the wonderful Tommy Tom Finney, uh, the Preston Blummer, uh, who is one of the one of the best England players ever as well. I mean, he's right up there. Um, it's fantastic. It's it, it, what a what a team. I mean, Billy Wright, who 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 captain. He, he's the England record holder captain. I mean, he's captain the side more than anybody else. Um, it was absolutely fantastic. You know, one hundred and five caps. Um, you know, um, played for Wolves all his life, and married a, um, a, a, a Andrew's sister, I believe, as well. Um, so. Um, what, yeah, what a great team. Uh, Neil Franklin, you mentioned, Ray Carter, uh, Wilf Mannion, Bob Langton. I mean, what a it's it's to me, it's such a shame that the Second World War happened because it robbed a lot of these players with their you know best years, really. Um, Tom Finney is, is 24, that's not not too bad. Ray Carter is 32. You know, he's he's had seven, he's sorry, he's had, he's had six caps prior to the First World War. Um, Tommy Lawton is 26. So, you know, he's had probably five years though where he hasn't been able to play international. Stanley Matthews doesn't come uh, and play international football again until the following year. Um, and he has, you know, he has got a numerous amount of caps. I mean, I think he has a record for the, the not only is the oldest um, player uh, to play at the age of 40, I want to say 42, but I could be wrong. Uh, but also that he has the longest career, well over 20 years, longer than Peter Shilton uh, did in his 125 caps. Um, you know, so it's it's if it wasn't for the Second World War, these players would have broken all the records, I think. One side note of, of this, of this policy not to give Walter Winterbottom selection of the team, does backfire in the 1950 World Cup. Uh, are we and we probably all know the game we're talking about. Um, so what happens is England qualify quite easily for the 1950 World Cup. They are one of the best teams in the world. They expected probably to to win the World Cup. They play Chile in their first game, which they win quite comfortably. But for reasons unbeknownst only to the Football Association and uh, Stanley Matthews, that the FA send 
Stanley Matthews on a goodwill tour of Canada prior to the World Cup. His boat is delayed. He doesn't arrive in Chile until um sorry it's um sorry in Brazil sorry um until the day the day after uh the Chile game. So and this is this is the problem with the the situation right now because selection is in charge of the F, the, the FA select committee. The, but the problem is with that is because most of them are still in London. So therefore. There is one person that selects a team that day. His name was Mr. Arthur Drury from Grimsby. And he was he was a select committee member. And he was the only FA select committee member present at that time. And he decided that because England had done well against Chile, he would pick the same team and left the arriving Stanley Matthews, who was now available. He left him out of that game. And we all know what happened. The, the, against a, 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 a game of amateurs. I mean, I must say that that American team played their socks off and deserved their win. But can you imagine what could have happened if the best player in the world was not picked? And it was down to the fact that it's some guy from Grimsby decision. I mean, that that just, when I first found out about that fact, that, that, that absolutely blew my mind. Walter Win Winterbottom couldn't do anything about it. You know, he, he doesn't pick the team. So he could train players. He could, you know, make sure that they had the right meals on time, make sure they had the right accommodation. But the England manager is, is has to, has to you know, bow down to some chap from Grimsby and say, no, nope, the best player in the world is not going to play today. And they lose. I think the 1950 World Cup was a real eye-opener for Winterbottom. Uh, it, I mean, people talk about the Hungary game in 1953, but I think for him, it was the first indication that England had really fallen behind the rest of the world. Uh, they they struggled, obviously, against the United States. Uh, against Spain, there were lots of defensive tactics that they didn't seem to know how to cope with and lots of underhand tactics. Uh, so I think he was he knew that England needed to absorb different tactics, different ways of playing, but he was still quite uh ineffective or he didn't he wasn't still wasn't really in a position to coach them. Uh obviously the the result against Hungary really reinforced that for the rest of rest of the country. But he, he did try a few innovations after that. I mean he introduced uh practice matches against club sides uh, in 1954, he introduced the uh, the under-23 team in 1955. So gradually, bit by bit, it was sort of an evolution uh, of, of tactics and trying out different things. He was still battling against the selection committee during this time. Uh, it was he, he came up with a strategy of going into uh, selection committee meetings with his favourites and sort of trading them off against the the other committee members. So there might be a couple of players that he wouldn't mind losing, uh, but there were one or two that he really wanted in the team. But he'd get this situation where he knew two players worked really well together uh, and player A would get voted in and then it'd come to player B and he'd get voted out and it sort of defeated the object. So it was quite often one step forward and, and two steps back. Winterbottom is the only manager to manage England at four World Cups. It's 
it's remarkable that that system carries on because surely he would have voiced his disapproval at times or there would have surely been a clash of views along the way. He's trying to pick his team and his players and he knows them better than anybody in terms of coaching them and developing them as England manager. But it's up to the men in suits, essentially, who, who still overrule him. When it came to about 1960, I think he be- actually became head of the selection committee. So I think he'd worn them down by that time. And in the 60-61 season, we see the uh, the England team scoring lots of goals. They beat Scotland 9-3, they beat Mexico 8-0. And they had a really settled side that season. There were very few changes. And I think that is possibly the first or the only true Winterbottom team that was uh, successful. And at the end of that year, or during 1961, Stanley Rouse, the secretary of the FA, had uh, he he left to join FIFA. And Walter Winterbottom actually applied for his job. We put his name forward, but he didn't get enough votes. Uh, and then the following year, 1962, he uh, he decided to move on, and he got a job at these. He became secretary of the Central Council for Physical Recreation. Uh, which took him back to his uh, probably his college days, uh, and a, a, probably a wider remat, remit. He was still in his forties at that point. I think he was forty nine. Alf Ramsey. He was appointed as Winterbottom's successor as England manager in October nineteen sixty two. He'd taken Ipswich Town from the second division in 1961 and then won the first division at the first attempt in 1962 so he'd already shown his managerial prowess quite early on in in his managerial career at Portman Road now Ramsey he was known for being a a deep thinker on the game he'd played 32 times for England as a right back so he knew international football he knew what was required to play for England and be involved with the England setup. Appointed on the 25th of October 1962, he didn't take on the full-time responsibility, though, until Ipswich was safe from relegation. And this meant not taking full charge until May 1963. So essentially, in the 62-63 season, he's managing England and Ipswich simultaneously. Now, it wasn't quite a break from the old, certainly not right away. Because for his first two games in charge, that international select committee is still there, Davey. Yes, absolutely. Yes, uh, Alfred Ernest Ramsey, born in Dagenham in 1920. Um, not the um, uh, not the only uh, manager we probably might get to later on, uh, come directly from successor Ipswich as well. Bobby Robson uh, did this as well and got appointed England manager because on, on the back of his successes at Ipswich. He did wonders. Uh, with it, which did Alf Ramsey. He um, he was written initially player manager there. I think they were third division south when he joined, and he got them um, promoted to the first division by sixty one. So um, the FA sought him out. I think it was probably on the behest of Winterbottom, as as Glenn said, he'd be he was in charge by now, and said I think Winterbottom thought that he was a natural successor to him, um, but he had one stipulation which was i want to i want to select the team um and so they 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 acquiesced to, to that to that decision they but 
not until the summer when uh, his contract was supposed to start. So he <laughs> has this really weird position where the first two games he plays without being able to select the team, and it doesn't go particularly too well. Um, I think the first game is a is a it's a European Championship qualifier or Nations Cup as it was in those days against France and um, England lose five two. Um, nor was his second uh, particularly uh, very memorable, which I think was against Scotland, and they lose 2-1. But then he starts in his own imitable style to start a lot, you know, uh, you know, mould his team. He, he, he does a, 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 a draw against Brazil, which is commendable. He beats uh, the Czechoslovakia 4-2, um, East Germany 2-1, and an 8-1 thrashing of... Uh, Switzerland um, in 19, in June 63. The, 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 the thing is with with Ramsey, it's like Venables. They both came to the role when England had been selected to host a tournament. And they've therefore played a succession of friendlies. There was really no competitive matches. In fact, after, you have to think about it, but England played no no competitive matches up until 66 because they were the tournament host for the next world cup they were holders they didn't play any they were they qualified automatically as holders so it's difficult to judge i mean yes they won the world cup so you could judge him on that but really they played very few um i think ramsey played fifth ramsey was in charge for 52 so that's almost just under half of his uh, the games he played, he, played he, he was manager for 113 games. 52 of them were friendlies. This is an inordinate amount of number. Uh, um, it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, but there were also you could you could throw in the, the Nations Cup, which which was in Brazil. Um, you know, so and the British Home Championship, which I, we we certainly know they're not friendly at all. So I don't think you can class them as such. But he only really played World Cup qualifiers. He played four. European Championship qualifies 17 and World Cup finals 10. So most of his games were friendly. So do, I mean, obviously, you know, we we, we think as of Alf Ramsey as, as the most successful England manager. Of course he is because he won the World Cup. But it must have been very frustrating for him to not be able to play competitive matches. Or, or on the other hand, it might have been a really good thing for him so he could hone his squad don't forget before the 1966 world cup england played a ridiculous amount of friendlies they were playing yugoslavia in may finland at the end of june then norway three days later and in july they played denmark and then they played poland they played five um games in between may now that's not even um talking about um playing against poland uh, and germany and scotland um, in January, February, and April. So they played eight games prior to the World Cup. Now, the last World Cup just gone, Gareth Southgate didn't have any warm-up friendlies. Alf Ramsey had eight in the calendar year of 1966. I think, actually, of all the years, uh, apart from, I think, the, the uh, 2021 one, where England were playing absolutely loads of games plus the European Championship, it is. It is. They. These. It's. It's the year that they played the most games. Nineteen sixty-six. They just played so many times, and he managed to hone his his team, the wingless wonders, you know, and and, and get that thing. So, um, yes, at the start, 
Ramsey's under the uh, the auspices of the FA Select Committee for the first two games, but eventually he starts to sort of like you know mould his team. And the FA are absolutely very happy to let him do this. They they've relinquished control, which to me is a watershed moment in the FA. They have been selecting the team since 1872, nearly 90 years. 91 years they've been selecting the team for them to sort of like say no we're not going to do that anymore off you go rely on one guy to do it that is a monumental ground shift in fa thinking when you put it like that that is yeah quite remarkable that in the history of the england team the fa have picked the team on average for a longer period than the actual managers have when you stretch it out but we know ramsey's success that comes later with 1966 and England being regarded as one of the finest teams in the world under his stewardship for a very long time. But the start of his managerial career with England doesn't get off to such a good start. This game on the 27th of February 1963 is the second leg of a qualifier for the 1964 European Nations Cup or in today's money, the European Championship. And England were held to a 1-1 draw by the French in the first leg in October 1962 at Hillsborough. But this second leg doesn't go quite so well for Ramsey as his predecessor's first game went, as England lose 5-2 in France, 6-3 on aggregate. Now, having a look at the team, it's an interesting mix because you do see some players in there who are still there in 1966 and even beyond 1966. But you can still see that the transition between the old and, and Ramsey's new. So in goal, Ron Springer of Sheffield Wednesday, the captain at right back, Jimmy Armfield, Ron Henry at left back, wearing number four, strangely, Bobby Moore, 21 years old at this point and winning his ninth cap. Partnering him in central defence, Brian LeBone. Then we've got Ron Flowers, John Connolly, Bobby Tamling, who Chelsea fans will know was their top scorer for many, many years until Frank Lampard broke the record. Bobby Smith and Jimmy Greaves up front. And also winning his 40th cap at this point, Bobby Charlton wearing number 11. The side is very similar to one which featured in Walter Winterbottom's final match in charge against Wales. Would we have to wait a while to see Ramsey's imprint on the team? Or were there signs in this match of what was to come under Ramsey, albeit not in terms of the result? I don't think you can, really. I mean, England hadn't played uh, since uh, October, I think. Ramsey was still manager at Ipswich, fighting uh, a relegation battle. And I think the team selection was, was made for him. Uh, also, I don't think people realise that that was uh, a very cold uh, period. Uh, it was the year of the big freeze in the UK. Uh, this was played on the 27th of February. Uh, and I had to have a look at uh, what the weather was like in Paris. Uh, and I found that it was uh, minus 12 overnight on the previous weekend. It got up to minus 8 the night before the game. And it was actually minus 5 on the night of the game. It was really, really cold. It was the first time England had had an international before March uh, since 1936. And 
they were prepared for this because they wore long sleeves for the first time since 1954. It was also lots of the players uh, had only played about two or three games, most of them that year. There'd been so many postponements. For example, Bobby Charlton uh, was the weekend before he played his first game since Boxing Day. So that was almost two months. Uh, Springit, who was in goal, uh, made he was blamed for three of the goals, uh, although Ramsey said he'd taken a kick in the ribs uh, for one of them. Uh, he hadn't actually played since January the 12th. So that was six and a half weeks before the game. And I, I don't think he did himself that much damage, even though Banks was selected for the next international uh, against uh, Scotland. Uh, and Springit was still around for the 1966 World Cup as an understudy to Banks. So he wasn't blamed too much for that. And of course, the the two survivors or the two players that did make it into the 66 winning side that played in that first game for Ramsey were Bobby Moore and Bobby Charlton. And I think the games that followed, uh, Scotland and Brazil, uh, one defeat, one draw, not too promising. But by the, by the end of season tour in 1963, I think Ramsey was starting to make his mark. He made Bobby Moore captain, still quite young, but obviously the, the qualities were there to lead the team. It was a tour of Central Europe uh, that took in East Germany, uh, Switzerland and Czechoslovakia, uh, which they won these games quite convincingly. I think the win over the Czechs was 4-2 and that was probably the, the biggest win because Czechoslovakia had got to the World Cup final the year before in Chile. And it was after this tournament that Ramsey made his famous claim that England would win the World Cup in 1966. But fortunately, he kept to that promise. Uh, well, I mean, you're absolutely right. That, that only Bobby Charlton and Bobby Moore did played in the World Cup final in '66. But don't forget, Jimmy Greaves and John Connolly did actually start that tournament as well. So there were there were a couple of other players who were still yep. in um, in in Alf Ramsey's mind that he didn't necessarily pick them at the start of the uh, for this game, but they were st still in his mind. So there, there's a kind of a four players there that would still be in the World Cup squad in 66, you know, four years later. Sorry, three years later, three and a bit years later. Uh, but yes, as Glenn said, yes, I don't think any of these players had played at all and they were very unfit. And Spriggett had a nightmare. Um, as Glenn says, I think he let in three goals or was responsible for three goals, but, you know, which hastened probably the arrival of um, the... Uh, of our 66 um, World Cup keeper who was waiting in the wings. Yeah, and just for the record, we'll we'll have a look at, at what happens in this game. So first 45 minutes, England go 3-0 down, which given the circumstances you've both gone through there is perhaps not too surprising. Uh, Marianne Wisniewski, Yvonne Dewey and Lucien Cousseau make it 3-0 to France in that first half. England do pull it back to 3-2 in the second. Bobby Smith and Bobby Tambling goals, reducing the arrears. But Wisniewski and Cousseau strike again in the final 15 minutes to make the final score 5-2 or 6-3 on aggregate. And Springett was blamed for three of the goals 
And I do find it interesting that the very next game, Gordon Banks is in the team. And already that feels like Ramsey is starting to build towards the 1966 World Cup. And it's a first step towards getting that team that takes England to glory and, and ultimately wins it. Well, yeah, you could know, you could know, uh, Ramsey was such an enigma in a way. He was Dagenham born and bred, but he, he adopted this very posh accent. He was very keen to shed. Well, and sometimes it came out when he got really, really angry. That 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 Essex accent really came out. He couldn't quite get away from from that. But um, he was kind of like, uh, yeah. So it was, it was, it was. I, I guess he was trying to at this point really early on trying to mould an England team like he had done that Ipswich team. And, um, yeah, I think he saw something in Gordon Banks that he thought, well, you know what, you know, this guy's pretty good. Let's give him, well, as as England managers do, let's give this guy a chance. He might actually be quite good. And he was absolutely right. He was very, very good. Poor Ron Sprigger had a nightmare that day and that probably hastened his demise. I think he only played three more games, I think, off the top of my head, uh, but not very many more. Uh, but Hedberg, he had been, you know, the number one uh, um, stalwart um, for quite a while, uh, custodian of, of between the sticks. So to usurp him, uh, you'd have to have someone pretty special. And we all know Banks was pretty special. Um, and he started, he, 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 Jimmy Arnfield was still captain at this time, but he soon realised that Bobby Moore was pretty much leadership material, uh, as we all know. Um, and it was very obvious decision to start making him captain. Um, you had talents like Bobby Moore, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Bobby Charlton and Jimmy Greaves, uh, who, uh, in, in my mind, was one of the best strikers in the world. Uh, uh, Jeff Hurst, quite rightly, gets all the plaudits, but, you know, Jimmy Greaves was just absolutely fantastic. And it's such a shame that he he didn't get his 66 winners medal till, you know, 50 years later or whenever it was. It was a travesty, to be honest, because, the, you know, uh, one of the finest um, England uh, uh, centre forwards um, um, in the modern era. Um, but, you know, yes, Ramsey has a plan. Ramsey has done this at Ipswich um, and he had... Um, an absolute plan of what to do. And he was so confident with it that he predicted that England would win. And I guess it was inevitable that they, that, that they would win the 66 World Cup. So we're going to jump forward now a few years and another Ipswich manager is appointed to the England hot seat, Bobby Robson, in 1982. To be specific, he was appointed on the 7th of July, 1982, just after England's exit from the 82 World Cup. Robson, again, was a former England player. Between 1957 and 1962, he won 20 caps. And after taking over as Ipswich manager in 1969, he'd got them into the first division. He'd taken them to within a few points of winning the first division in 1981. He won the FA Cup with them in 1978 and followed that up by winning the UEFA Cup in 1981. So he certainly had credentials both domestically and in Europe, and there were arguably few better managers around and qualified for the job at the time. Glenn, how was the appointment of Robson viewed generally at that time in July 1982? Was he seen as the right man for the job? 
Uh, absolutely, for, for the reasons uh, you've given. He'd done a tremendous job at Ipswich, very unfashionable side, who and he had great success with them, getting into Europe almost every year throughout the 70s. And of course, Alf Ramsey had, had come from the same club. Uh, he was already in the England setup uh, under Ron Greenwood. I think he'd been manager of the B team. In fact, he was in the one of the warm-up games before the 82 World Cup, which was Greenwood's last as manager. Robson took charge of what was supposed to be a B team, England international in Iceland, uh, the the night before a full international against Finland. Uh, so Greenwood was in Finland with the full internationals and Robson was given charge of what was a B international that was subsequently upgraded to a full international. So that, in, you could say, was his actual first match as manager. Uh, but then, of course, everybody knew he'd gotten the job before the World Cup. Uh, he was there to observe. The draw for qualification for Euro 84 puts England in a group alongside Denmark, Hungary, Greece and Luxembourg. Now, England had beaten Hungary twice in qualifying for the 82 World Cup. So they were seen as a tricky side, but nothing to be fearful of. Greece and Luxembourg, certainly Luxembourg, were were whipping boys back then and probably still are now. And Denmark, we didn't know a great deal about Denmark. They'd beaten Italy in a World Cup qualifier in 1981 by three goals to one. They weren't at the 82 World Cup. The press were confident when this draw was made. However, that arrogance would come back to bite England because Denmark were were pretty good, weren't they, Davy? And and caused a surprise. They were they were very good. This very good Denmark team. Um, their their ELO ranking at the time of twenty four uh, it was seriously um, under that doesn't belie how um, good they were. Just to pick up on Glenn's point before I go into the match. Absolutely. Uh, Ron Greenwood set up the uh, he was very instrumental in how he 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 planned not just when he during his tenure, but the, the next sort of like 10, even 20 years, you could say he was instrumental in that. He he, as Glenn said, he got Bobby Robson in as a, the Ipswich manager in to do the B internationals. He got um, uh, coaches like um Hurst, uh, Jeff Hurst, Telford manager at the time, to be coaches. He got Venables in uh, for some youth clubs, and and Brian Robson, uh, sorry, <laughs> Brian Clough, I beg your pardon, and and uh, um, you know, in to do the under twenty one. So he set out a right Greenwood set out a framework basically of how the England levels would go, and this is the first time it would ever been structured like this. And we have to thank Ron Greenwood. So Ron Greenwood for this. So. Uh, Bobby Robson, the B team manager at the time, yes, he was a natural successor uh, to Greenwood, and it was rather obvious that, that he would get the job um, later on in his his career. When when um, uh, for a career, England manager career, he when when he missed out on several tournaments, he kept trying to resign his position. The FA kept saying no. <laughs> he, he wanted Brian Clough to do it. We've talked about that before, but they obviously didn't want someone like Brian Clough to be England manager, so they kept refusing him. Um, but this match was, yeah, um, the, the the Danes were uh, particularly uh, uh, very, very good. They don't have, you know, there's some standout names here. Uh, Jesper Olsen, uh, Soren Lerby, uh, Lars Bastrup, uh, Preben Elk. I mean, uh, you know, Alan Hansen, not that Alan Hansen, but the Danish Alan Hansen. <laughs> they've, got, they've got some 
uh, fantastic and uh, fantastic names in this team. Um, and the uh, the recently late uh, Trevor Francis scored um, uh, both uh, both England goals, but. Um, we Alan Hansen scored a penalty in the 70 minute mark, and Jasper Olsen pops up, um, well into in well, just about five minutes before the 90 five seconds before 90 minutes are up to score the equalizer. And they would go on, uh, to win that group, um, and go to that European uh, Championship in '84 instead. And Mariner winning a ball well in the air. Now, Robson, can he keep it in? And Mariner again, and Rick. England get the goal through Trevor Francis. Olsen. Still Olsen. Brilliantly done. Jesper Olsen with a goal of supreme quality. England just could not get a tackle in. I guess this was... Um... Yeah, it's, it's, I always find it very difficult to to to, to, to gauge a, a a manager's first game in charge. It's it's always very uh, you know objective, you know, subjective, I guess. Um, about you know what what can they what do they what can they bring to the role? I mean, you know, is it luck? Is it kind of like you know they haven't molded the team in any way? Um, I guess it's kind of like you know just throw them into the deep end and find out what happens. Um, they had a reasonably good team. You, 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 you know, uh, Peter Shilton in goal. You've got Ray Clements as captain uh, alongside Brian Robson. Uh, this is, uh, he's just, I think, moved to uh, Man United in the off season. I think I could be wrong about that. Uh, Trevor Francis, I say Paul Mariner, Terry Butcher's there, uh, Kenny Sansom at, uh, at left back, Phil Neal at right back. So, you know, Graham Ricks, uh, Tony Morley. Uh, Russell Osman. I mean, it's 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 a uh, he's inherited a, a decent team. They are in the ELO rankings, which uh, I talked about in the last podcast. They they are retrospective rankings. FIFA did not bring their rankings in until the the, the mid nineties or any, and they they weren't any credible uh, substance until just recently. So uh, we have these called ELO ratings, which retrospectively um, can rank teams. Uh, they're just used as a guide to, to show you, you know, the strength of a particular team using the ELO method, which was developed for chess. England at the time uh, were third um, in, in the, the ELO ratings and Denmark were 24th. Um, so you could see that, you know, on paper, England should have, you'd think would should have won but you know this is a good the start of a, that 80s danish team which i i absolutely uh, uh, admired in and in, in, uh, with the loud drops where they would come on a bit later and you know the Molbys and all those, those sort of like players but um it was a fantastic danish team and getting you know this is in copenhagen so you know you know being two one up with the last 10 minutes and they get a last minute equaliser you know I don't think that's a bad return on my money to be honest if I'm the England manager and this is one of the most dramatic games on the list I think with the off-field antics involving England fans and hooliganism before the game uh, in Copenhagen the match unfolding with England going in front after seven minutes through Trevor Francis but Denmark fight back with a brand of really exciting attacking football. They have a couple of penalties turned down Denmark before they eventually 
they eventually are awarded a penalty. Russell Osman, who brings down Olsen, I think, in the box. Yeah. And Alan Hansen, not that one, converts the penalty. And then England back in front, as you say, through Francis. It's um, a little bit reminiscent of the set piece that worked so well at the 82 World Cup, the throw-in, although it's a corner this time. Swung in, uh, Ray Wilkins, Butcher meets it at the front post, flicks it on, and, and Francis gets it over the line at the back post. But yeah, this this slaloming run from Jesper Olsen in the dying seconds, which is a fantastic run when you watch it back. And he slots the ball past Peter Shilton, earns Denmark a point. It's a damaging result for England, potentially, but not as much as what happens a year later when Denmark come to Wembley and beat them 1-0 and in doing so stop England from qualifying for Euro 84. And you mentioned Robson there was handing in his resignation essentially until the the FA rejected it and, and told him to stay in the job. So when you look back on this first game, we haven't even mentioned yet the big call that Robson makes before the match, which is to not include the player who was the captain at this time and had been for many years, Kevin Keegan. Well, I was just going to come on to that. Yes, um, this is yes a massive call. Uh, don't forget that uh, Keegan had um, his last game had been in the really weird second round of the eighty-two World Cup, where there wasn't a quarterfinals. You know, it wasn't a knockout stage. It was kind of like a second group stage. England had to play West Germany and Spain. Both he and Trevor Brooken had been injured throughout the entire tournament. And they come on as, as second half substitutes for this one game. That's just the, you know, Kevin Keegan had not ever played in any major tournament for his entire uh, England career because we didn't get to the the, the seventy eight World Cup, you know, uh, and and um, or the eighties. Uh, uh, well, it was there was the eighties Euros, but I don't think he played in those. But um, we could get to the get to the eighty two World Cup, and he's injured, and Trevor Brooking also, and of course. It's five games into the tournament that he and Trevor Trevor Brooking are allowed thirty minutes, and of course, you know we all know that 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 dainty flick that he tries to do and he misses the goal by that much. Um, and I I don't know I, I don't know whether he thought he was past it. Well, Robbie Robson thought that Keegan was past it. I think he did. He with with not picking him, he effectively ended his career. He never played for England again. So whether he had a conversation with him, I would like to think that Bobby Robson, being such a, 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 a congenial uh, gentleman, I think he would have phoned Kevin Keegan up and said, look, you know what? Thank you ever so much, but I'm not going to pick you. I'd like to think that he would have done that because he was a nice bloke was Bobby Robson. He was a good, good, good uh, um, chap. Um, I, I, I really Great. rate him as a manager. But um, I don't know whether he well, did that or not, but maybe Glenn might know. But um... Well, I agree that Robson was a man of integrity uh, and he always seemed to do the right thing, especially when it came down to man management and his relationships with players. But I don't think he did phone Keegan. I do remember a, uh, a news report at the time where they were following Keegan, I think, from a training session. Uh, and he was a bit miffed, really. Uh, he was... I mean, he was often emotional at various points in his career when he thought decisions were wrongly made against him. Uh, and he was having a bit of a moan that uh, Robson hadn't contacted him. 
and he thought it was it was worth a, a phone call. But uh, Robson stuck to his guns. Uh, Keegan was 31 at the time. He, he'd been playing for Southampton. He picked up a lot of injuries uh, and he just dropped into the second division with Newcastle United. So it, I guess it did look to Robson that it was getting towards the end of his career. And he was the new manager coming in. He wanted younger players, understandably, uh, and making a clean sweep. Even though it was Keegan, to a lot of people, Keegan was England. I mean, over the past uh, two years, uh, with Euro 80 and uh, Espana 82, Keegan seemed to be the one man getting England there. He was scoring the goals with Brooking alongside him uh, and uh, getting England to these major tournaments. And it wasn't just Keegan that he dropped as well. He dropped Trevor Brooking as well, as I just mentioned. Um, that was his last cap. In, well, Greenwood in the previous game in the World Cup, he never picked Brooking. Right. Um, and he all, uh, 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 Brooking was 33 at the time. That's kind of understandable. But he also didn't pick Mick Mills as well. Mick Mills captain the side. Um, and he was, he was, and this is probably the most, weirdest one because he was the Ipswich captain or I don't know if, was he captain anyway but he played for Ipswich at yes. the time um and he and he didn't pick his own man so those three players Trevor Brook and Kevin Keegan Mick Mills never played for England again under Bobby Robson he didn't pick them um so that's probably a little bit more surprising than the Keegan one to be honest so Robson took uh a lot of flack during that season after that Denmark game. They lost uh, 2-1 at home to West Germany at Wembley. They then went, went on a run of reasonable results. Uh, they failed to qualify for the H4 European Championship after losing to Denmark at Wembley. Uh, and there was a bit of a clamour at the time. Uh, I think Robson might have even offered to resign. Uh, people were saying Keegan should be brought back. But he, but he stuck with it. The FA... Uh, wanted to keep him, uh, and he got them to the World 86 World Cup. Uh, and things st didn't start off too well there, but eventually uh, we ended up with a winning team. Yes, don't forget in 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 eighty, he, 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 they, they, for some reason I don't understand this, but the FA whether well, I can't believe Robson did this, but I, mean, I think it was the FA. But they they went on lots of goodwill tours. They they went in eighty three in June eighty three. They went to Australia and played three games back to back, um, uh, drawing two, winning one by just a one nil scoreline. Um, and then they would go off and do some weird tours. I, I'm not entirely sure of, of any benefit whatsoever. Uh, to Bobby Robson and his team, just I think probably to promote the FA and to promote the, the you know, which might have you know done mm. you know some good in in in, in those countries, mm. but you know I can't see mm. it would have mm. helped his his selection process or or anything in in the time. Um, of course, we know that. As I said, he he tried to resign every time he he kind of like lost the talk. in eighty eight. He tried to resign. 1990, he didn't retire, tried to retire because they actually did rather well and the press were now on his side. I think he kind of like that, you know, you're, you're getting that, that not only the you're getting the big flack from the tabloid press or the mainstream press, whatever you want to call it. And he really responded to that and he, he did not like it at all. So when England did badly, he was, you know, I want out of here. And the FA kept saying, nope, we, we've got a contract with you. And eventually he did come good. Uh, I mean, uh, England were, 
a a a Stuart Pearce away from uh, a World Cup final in 1990, or a Glenn Hoddle, if you like. Uh, sorry, a Waddle uh, over the bar away from the World Cup final. So he nearly did come good in the end, but certainly some tournaments were were, were awful. The 88 tournament, a European tournament, where England went into that tournament as a number one ranked side, which um, is even more galling, and they ended up losing every single game. By the end of his England tenure, Robson had turned it around. He'd led England to a World Cup semi-final and he left with, I think, the good wishes of every England fan. He'd certainly won over the doubters and 1990, it's still talked about today, is an iconic tournament and that England run to the semi-finals is still remembered very fondly. After Robson left in 1990, he was replaced by Graham Taylor. He then left at the end of 1993, after England failed to qualify for USA 94. And that's where our next manager comes in, Terry Venables. He's appointed in January 1994. Looking back at it, he was tasked with restoring national pride after the disappointment of missing out on the 94 World Cup. He was also seen as the people's choice. And even though... And this is probably a common theme, and we've spoken about it earlier. He probably wasn't an FA man, was he, Glenn? But he was probably the right man for the job. Yes, uh, definitely was. Uh, There was an air of pessimism, I think, after Graham Taylor's uh, couple of years, uh, or three years, which, not necessarily his fault, uh, but Venables was seen as a bit of a, a breath of fresh air. He was... Uh, much more relaxed with the media, whereas Taylor had had some really awkward press conferences with the media uh, and people seemed to just lose confidence out with him to his face. Uh, TV interviews as well were often quite awkward. But uh, Venables, I mean, he he was a natural uh, with the media. He was so relaxed. uh, Nothing seemed to bother him. Uh, He did, of course, have the advantage of uh, a load of friendlies uh, from 94 up to 96. Uh, So he he could really experiment with the team. Uh, It was a pretty low-key time, I think. The um, results were, there were lots of 1-0s and 1-1s and 2-1s. So results didn't really matter that much. It was quite a low-key period. TV, you couldn't see much of it on terrestrial TV. You just get highlights on Sports Night and Sky were showing the games live. But uh, I don't think as many people had Sky subscriptions. It's, it was still fairly early days for that. Because of his uh, dealings, previous dealings with Tottenham, where he'd been uh, chief executive and been sacked by Alan Sugar, uh, and there were ongoing legal disputes. Uh, the FA really didn't want him as England manager, so they gave him the title of head coach uh, because they only wanted him responsible for the team. He starts off quite early on making changes and putting his stamp on things. When you look at the team he picks for this game and the formation he plays, it's the Christmas tree formation, a 4-1-3-2-1, which has almost become synonymous with Terry Venable's time in charge of England and it's something that he uses throughout his reign right through to Euro 96. 
the team he picks then in goal, David Seaman, at right back, Paul Parker. Left back, he brings in Graham Lasso, who'd performed very well for Blackburn. And Venables himself admitted that he was looking for potential replacements for Stuart Pearce, who at this point was 32, 33 years old. So he was looking to bring in some younger players, Graham Lasso being one of them. Holding midfield, Paul Ince, centre-backs, Tony Adams and Gary Pallister. The new captain, David Platt, Paul Gascoigne alongside him in midfield. Alan Shearer up front. Peter Beardsley gets a recall after three years in the international wilderness. And also making his international debut was Darren Anderton, who Venables knew well through his links with Tottenham. On the bench as well, and he does come on for Gascoigne to make his international debut, Matt Letizia, who was a, a player who divided opinion, people thinking that he should have played more for England than he did, others thinking he was too much of a luxury, but Venables was keen to give him a go here and, and brings him on for his international debut. Now, looking at the England team, the, the we've gone through the notable talking points there, but the one that interests me is Venables recalling Peter Beardsley. Now, at this point, he moved to Newcastle. He was in fantastic form for Kevin Keegan's Newcastle team that had got promoted to the Premier League. He was scoring goals, assisting them for fun. He'd been jettisoned by Graham Taylor in 1991. And when you look at Peter Beardsley coming back in, Davey, what was the significance of Venables bringing him back? And what was his thinking to bring Beardsley back into the fold? Well, I think quite simply, he thought he still had something to offer. Um, uh, Terence Frederick Venables, uh, another Dagenham lad, um, just like um, Alfred, Sir Alfred Ramsey, um, he suffered under friendlies as well, just like um, his, uh, just like Ramsey. Sixteen of his games, uh, of his twenty-four games, were friendlies. Uh, this is because England were hosting. Euro 96. So he joined uh, the England setup and he had a succession of friendlies. You could say that the uh, Umbro International Tournament, where they played Japan, Sweden, and Brazil, because it was a competition, you could call that a competitive game. Um, so add that, add that three to it as well. So you only have the five matches during the Euro 96 as a competitive matches. Everything else is technically a friendly. Um, so he has a lot of time to think about his squad. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I find the Peter Beersley thing, why not so much why Venables reinstated him after three years, why Graham Taylor didn't want to play him. I still think he had a lot to offer the England team, and especially his link up with the then captain, Gary Lineker, uh, up until the 1992 um uh, European Championship. He re Lineker retired then, um, and so Venables is the, you know, the next very next game is is he has to pick a new captain, and, and Platt is is an obvious choice. But why uh, a person uh, like Beardsley, who had linked up so well with Lineker, had been uh, uh, shunned by uh, Graham Taylor? That I think is more the question. Really, uh, it to me it seems like a no brainer. Really, to bring. 
uh, Peter Beardsley back. Um, and um, he gets, um, I believe he gets a few more caps. I'm oh, sorry, I'm just bringing up the stats now, but um, I'm just trying to uh, look it up. But I think that uh, Beardsley, uh, he gets another nine caps after this game. So Venables certainly has him in mind. Um, I, I doesn't play in Euro 96. So, um, you know, he, 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 he's moved on. And also, this is also this first game is Paul Parker's. Uh, last game. Don't forget, you know, he he was instrumental in the 1990 World Cup as a, as a, as a right back. He was very established uh, playing for Manchester United. Uh, he, he brings in Graham Lasseau as the left back uh, and he kind of like has that position for quite a while. Uh, so, uh, uh, and, and he brings in Anderton as well, who, who we know about Anderton. And it's also Letizia, Matt Letizia's first cap as well, albeit from the substitution uh, in, in the 67th minute. Uh, but, um, you know, there are unchanged. He marks his stamp on it. He gives Platt. Obviously, he's lost his captain, so he he, he gives Platt uh, the next thing, the the, the 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 next best person. I would suggest probably to give it to you. You could argue Ince might have um, uh, been Ince will eventually become England captain, uh, but you've still got a backbone of that side. You've got Gascoigne, you've got Shearer, you've got uh, Tony Adams. Uh, David Seaman in goal. So, you know, things haven't moved on so much. And again, uh, oddly, it's against Denmark, just like um, Bobby Robson. Uh, but this time, England actually win um, at, uh, at Wembley, uh, Platt scoring uh, in the 17th minute. Um, the, the, the headline and the independent is England vibrant under Venables. So the reaction was that um, the change has at least done something and it's against very decent opposition in Denmark they are the reigning European champions really talented squad still at this stage the two yep. Laudrups are on the pitch you Michael, Michael yeah so Eric Larson is... Lars Olsen as captain yeah this is a great side and England take the game to them quite quite early on uh Alan Shearer has the ball in the net but he's ruled offside. Gaza forces Schmeichel into a save after some nice link-up between him and Beardsley, and more fluent side of England was already starting to show. Uh, 16 minutes, as you mentioned, the, the goal, David Platt. Shearer plays him in with a with a reverse pass, and Platt, with a left-footed shot, low into the far corner, scores the goal. Brian Laudrup out on the right. It wasn't a good ball. He stubbed his toe, I think. Instead, it's England on the attack. Shearer, good running by Platt, very good running by Platt, what a fine goal, and the England captain scores the first goal of the Terry Venables era. Anderton nearly scores on debut in the second half, but his effort is cleared off the line, and David Seaman has to make a big save to keep it at 1-0, from Brian Laudrup, who was played in on goal by brother Michael. So the two Laudrups linking up well. And coming to you, Glenn, that that change in style from Graham Taylor to Terry Venables, it might not have been wholly evident in the team selection, as Davies alluded to, but England were a lot more fluent in their approach under Venables. And it was evident quite early on. Yeah, yeah. they. I mean, they had that famous Christmas tree formation that or diamond uh formation that was mentioned uh but i don't i don't remember this game too well but i 
I I know that it did seem like uh, a big change. Uh, players seemed more relaxed. There was less pressure on them. I mean, obviously, partly because it's friendlies. Uh, Denmark had won the European Championship in '92, uh, and they and they hadn't qualified like England for the World Cup in uh, in the US, and it was the second successive World Cup that they hadn't qualified for. So it was an interesting uh, test for for England Denmark. Although you can't read very much into these games, I think it was third Wembley friendly in a row. Denmark one nil to England, and the one before that was the European Championship qualifier under Robson. It was the run up to Euro '96 that interest uh, really started to build, uh, and unfortunately, that was the time where the Venables felt that he wasn't getting the right support from the FA, uh, and he ended up. Uh, deciding not to stay on, or he wasn't offered a new contract anyway after Euro 96. He thought uh, he should have been offered one at least to the 98 World Cup. Uh, and Glenn Hoddle was uh, moved in to uh, replace him after the tournament. Uh, so then Venables uh, took the squad away to Hong Kong and China, where they had a, a team bonding exercise which probably got a little out of control at times. The uh, the famous dentist chair celebration and then uh, damage that was done on the plane, I think, on the way home. Uh, but Venables handled it really well. Uh, no individuals were blamed. Uh, the players stuck together. Nobody grasped on anybody else. Uh, and I think they all clubbed together to pay for the damage. So that that. That brought the team together, uh, and I and I think that put them in the right frame of mind going into such an important tournament. Uh, and uh, just 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 one final point from me on Venables: uh, if we disregard the penalty shootout against Germany in the uh, Euro '96 semi-final, he only ever lost one match, and that was against Brazil. I mean, you know, who doesn't lose against Brazil? So you know, he yeah, played yeah. twenty-four games. Uh, won 11, drew 11. So, you know, the win rate wasn't great, but only ever lost one. Um, and as Glenn said, um, there are lots of one nils, one alls in that. But, you know, he was, he, he, he brought something new to the England side. I always rated his predecessor, uh, to be honest. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I didn't have any problem whatsoever under the, 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 you know, uh, the auspices of Graham Taylor. But something went fun. Something went fundamentally wrong. He was a great manager at Lincoln and Watford before he became England manager. But for some reason, it went off the rails, and I can't quite understand it because then he went on to still be a successful manager after that. His tenure as as England manager was was a debacle, to be honest, uh, which is such a shame because you know I think he's a great manager. Uh, Venables uh, took over that reign, and he could. You think about it after that, you know, mess of qualifying for uh the world cup in 94 do i not like orange uh having uh, uh um the the you know uh, the dutch score you know w- w- when uh, what's his name should have been sent off i can't remember his name uh the, the dutch Koeman, uh, Ronald Koeman. Koeman. yeah Koeman, that's right ronald Koeman. yeah should have been sent off and he scored a free kick he's gonna flick it he's gonna flick it um and then of course you know the ignominy of of San Marino scoring after seven seconds, you know, you know, it couldn't, you couldn't possibly be any lower, really. 
the Venables had a very easy target to think to, to on his first match. Just don't be like that. So really, it, I mean, it, you know, England won the game. Even if England had lost the game, I think they probably would have said, "Well, these are the European champions." You know, you know, it, it's you know, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not too bad to be honest. But he didn't. Even though they won the game, and Venables became quite a successful England manager. It's a shame that his off. Uh, 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 you know his his dealings outside of the at uh, the FA and and being England manager scuppered his chances of his contract being renewed because you you know they they, they spooked the FA to be honest. Um, but you know then we got Glenn Hoddle and I I thought he was a great manager too. And our final game that we're going to look at is Sven Joran Eriksson's first game in charge, a friendly against Spain, 28th of February, 2001. Now, the story of Sven, he was appointed England manager in October 2000 and in doing so became England's first overseas manager. He signed a five-year contract upon his appointment. Initially, he'd agreed to take over after the expiry of his contract at Lazio, which was June 2001, he decided to resign early from Lazio and officially took up the role of Three Lions boss in January 2001. Now, there was a lot of debate about Ericsson's arrival, namely that the FA had appointed a foreign manager for the first time. But I remember Adam Crozier at the time was insistent that Ericsson was the only man for the job and they hadn't been looking anywhere else. He was the one they wanted. He's come in. He's going to work with Peter Taylor and Steve McLaren, buys into the strategy of England manager. He wants to even pave the way for an Englishman to succeed him, all that kind of talk. Now, Glenn, he was seen at the time, Sven, as one of the top managers in world football. He'd won domestic and European trophies across Europe, including most recently Serie A with Lazio. How do you remember his appointment going down and the first impressions of him coming over to England and taking the job? Yeah, it was an interesting and brave appointment. Uh, I'd heard of Ericsson. He'd won European trophies. He'd done really well in Sweden. He won the UEFA Cup with Gothenburg back in 1982, uh, which was, what, 18, 19 years before. Uh, but more up to date, he'd won the Cup Winners' Cup with Lazio at Villa Park, which was to be the scene of his his first England game. Uh, he was he was still with Lazio when he was uh, given the England job, and I think after Keegan, uh, there was a real struggle to think who could who could manage England. Who was there out there? Because since the, the Premier League, or in the late 90s, uh, we didn't have a dearth of successful English managers anymore. used to think that uh, England managers had to have won something, but there, were, there was nobody out there outstanding. Arsene Wenger was winning things at Arsenal, winning the double. Uh, Chelsea were winning things under Ruud Hullet and then Gianluca Vialli. So it, foreign coaches, French, uh, Italian and Dutch, uh, we're, we're having the success um, and a Swede as well. So we went to him as well. And he made a good start. Uh, we were we were in a bit of a, a pickle at the start of the World Cup qualifiers, uh, playing catch-up again, having lost to Germany at Wembley, uh, a goalless draw in Finland, 
so we had a, a lot to do and he had to build up confidence as well. But Ericsson seemed to bring in uh, an, an aura of calmness uh, about it all. He'd done it all before. And I think it's what the players needed at that time. And, and they certainly did respond uh, in that first year. So 28th of February 2001 is Sven's first game. As you mentioned, Villa Park in Birmingham is the venue. And this, I believe, is the first game that England play, first home game that they play while on tour with Wembley being redeveloped. And new stadium, new manager, new kit with England wearing the kit with the the red stripe running down one side of the front. New manager coming in. And his first team, Sven, does raise some eyebrows with one or two of his selections. So David James in goal, at right back, Phil Neville. At left back, he brings in Chris Powell, who's uncapped, playing for Charlton. He's 31 years old as well. So probably wouldn't be seen as a long-term pick at left back, but he played pretty well under Sven in the early part of his tenure. In midfield, Nicky Butt. David Beckham, Paul Scholes and Nicky Barmby. Centre-backs, Rio Ferdinand and Sol Campbell. And up front, Andy Cole and Michael Owen. So quite a strong lineup, I think. And from Sven's point of view, he, he, he has a decent pool of players to choose from as he's coming into the job. The, the way the first half went for England, Nick Barmby had a chance early on to put England ahead. Uh, his shot went wide from outside the box. Spain in... In this game, watching it back, they they enjoy most of the possession, but England improve as the first half goes on. And Nick Barmby, just as he did for Glenn Hoddle five years previously, scores the first goal of the Sven era, latching onto a through ball from Michael Owen and lobbing the ball past Iker Casillas as he's rushing out of goal. And at halftime, England lead 1-0. Owen. Oh, Bombay. Nick Bombay! England's first goal under Sven Juran Eriksson. It's England's first goal in four internationals. It's Bombay's first international goal for more than four and a half years. And it means England won Spain nil. Seven minutes to go to half time. And it's at half time that we start to see something happen, which becomes a very regular occurrence under Sven Juran Eriksson. And that's a massive half time substitutions. He makes six changes at the break here. And Davey, this was something that we would become rather used to under Sven. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure I ever like the mass substitutions because it 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 it. it well, I mean, half time it is not so bad, but you disrupt the um, rhythm of a game so much with massive substitution. Uh, he did this on numerous occasions. It, it, there were several times he, he changed the entire team. Uh, uh, thankfully, on, on this uh, occasion, he only changed six. In fact, actually, uh, a direct consequence of Sven Goran's action. I think, believe FIFA have brought in a rule that you can now only do, I think it's five or six subs in friendly games uh, because he would change the entire team. Um, just to go back to, to to what Glenn has said before I go into this game. Yes, uh, uh, Kevin Keegan's tenure as England manager was um, 
Well, I, I personally, I think it was worse than Graham Taylor's. I had a lot of respect for, as I previously said, a lot of respect for Graham Taylor. But Kevin Keegan uh, seemed to play the game with his heart on his sleeve. It was all emotion with Keegan. And uh, no more so than when uh, the last game at Wembley, when Germany won 1-0 from a, a Dietmar Hamann uh, quickly taken free kick, Keegan decided to resign, uh, you know, flippantly at the end of the game. That was all Keegan was like. It was it epitomised the guy, really. I, I I mean, I have, I don't think, he, he did really well at Newcastle. I don't think he was what England required at all. Um the very next game um, after that, the, the, it, England play Italy in November 2000, where Peter Taylor is caretaker manager, and he has the uh, audacious idea of making a, a certain David Beckham captain, which England lose that game, but, you know, there is kind of a seed of, you know, oh, that's quite a good idea, and, and Sven keeps this idea along, and, and Beckham uh, does indeed uh, continue to be captain. Um, and you've got some really good talent like Skulls and Owen and, and Andy Cole. You've got Rio Ferdinand, Sol Campbell. But he also looks at um, other players as well that, that from an outside eye, maybe we English can't see. And he selects Chris Powell at Charlton as um, as a left back. I mean, nobody would have. No, no Englishman, Englishman would have done that. No, he 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 went to see all these games prior to his tenure, and he saw something in Chris Powell. Thought, well, let's have a look. Yes, okay, he's thirty-one, but you know he might be able to do something. And he gives him uh, uh, five caps, and he performs admirably well. Uh, also, Gavin McCann, Michael Ball, not that Michael Ball. Um, uh, you know, get uh, you know, caps. These are players that maybe we don't have. They only get one cap. Uh, I think um, McCann and Ball. Uh, this is their only cap, but Powell has five. <laughs> Excuse me, but you know, he sees something differently, and that's a, a refreshing approach we have that we haven't had from um, England managers. You know, we, we're so you can't. Sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees, and and, and you it takes a. a foreigner with inverted commas to come over and have a look and see it with fresh eyes and um and put a team together i mean you've got a bet you've got david james and goal as you've mentioned the team phil neville chris powell nicky burt ferdinand sol campbell beckham skulls cole uh andrew cole uh michael owen nicky nick barmer you've got coming on at halftime heskey lampard gavin mccann nigel martin in goal you go Ekiog, Michael Ball, and Gary Neville. These are all names that, you know, uh, go on. Most of them go on to have very, very long, successful Eng England careers. A few of them don't. But also, let's look at the um, Spanish side. You've got Igor Casillas in goal. You've got Pep Guardiola playing. Uh, you've got uh, uh, Mendieta. You've got Raul, Luis Enrique. This is not a bad Spanish side. They weren't the best Spanish side, certainly not the side that they will become in future years but this is a very good very good side in england uh dispatched them three nil it was quite um it was quite i remember watching this game and i thought well oh, that, that that went well didn't it you know it was kind of <laughs> like you know i was scratching my head a bit really thinking oh, it's spain did um i think miss a penalty uh to be honest in the 78th minute uh nigel martin saved 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 the penalty but um we were thinking, I seem to remember thinking, wow, okay, well, you know, 
we we were dubious as to whether Sven could possibly. I don't know. It, 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 there's a certain alien uh, Englishness about. No, we, we've got to have an English manager. You know, they, we have these foreigners. We can't possibly have those. You, you know, th there is that mentality. I think, which I, I think is total BS, to be honest. Um, but uh, there was that, and, and I think that the tabloid press are really kind of like, um, you know, well, he better be good. Let's just say, and he was. It, it turned out that he actually did. I mean, we got to two consecutive World Cup quarterfinals, which we'd never had done. You know, we 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 you know, I don't think we're ever really going to win a, a you know a competition, but I think Sven uh, lifted the national side to another level that we hadn't actually been to before. Yes, okay, you know, under Venables, you could possibly say that you know, you know, we got to a semi final, and I always really rated Glenn Hoddle, uh, but but we'd gone down again under under the tenure of of Kevin Keegan. Um, and I think Sven lifted up, and he saw out his five-year contract until the 2006 World Cup, where again we lost out on penalties, which is a recurring theme if you're an England fan. There was a consistency about Sven, though, wasn't there? When you look at it, three quarterfinals, two in the World Cup, one in the European Championships, and okay, you could argue maybe he should have got England a bit further in in one or two of those. But the talent that they had, yes, yeah. Definitely. And just in this game, just to wrap up, in the second half, England doubled their lead through Emil Heskey. Uh, Ugo Ehiog's header fell to him in front of goal and he prodded it into the net. And then Ehiog himself scored to make it 3-0, a powerful header, thumping it past Casillas. And that was a another interesting call, actually, Ehiog. Another player who probably... Yeah. Thought his England days were long over. I think he got a cap under Venables around 95 96, but Sven bring, brings him in for this game and he scores. I don't think he, he plays again though for England. And obviously, now sadly, he's no longer with us, Ugo Ehiog. Now, looking at this, this game on its own, and, and Glenn coming to you, a 3 0 win over Spain in, in any era is, is quite notable and it kickstarts England under Sven and they turn out, don't they, to have quite a good 2001 under their new Swedish manager. Yeah, they followed the Spain game with the, his first qualifier, which was at Anfield. England won 3-1. Remember a great goal by Beckham and Michael Owen scoring as well. Uh, there was a 4-0 win against Mexico. I think that was at Pride Park, Derby. Uh, they won in Greece. Uh, they were starting to score lots of goals and playing lots of confidence. Uh but then it came to the game in Munich against Germany, and we were all staggered by that performance. A 5-1 away win, Michael Owen Hattery. Uh, and it, it was incredible uh, that we were suddenly in pole position. And we ended up playing Greece in the final game at Old Trafford. Uh, and I think all we had to do was match uh, Germany's uh, game at the same time. And we thought we'd always done well against Greece. But what we didn't know at that time was that uh, Greece were beginning to turn into uh, an unbeatable team that would go on to win the European Championship less than three years later. Uh, and it was a real struggle in that game. Uh, we were 2-1 down. Beckham seemed to be frantically uh, trying to drive England forward and he scored that unforgettable free kick uh, that got us a point. And as luck would have it, uh, Germany also drew. Uh, so, so we went through and uh, 
qualified on that basis. And I think Germany ended up in a playoff. So at the end of that year, going into 2002, we thought we've got quite a side here. We've got a really good team, uh, a decent manager, and it was all optimism. It certainly was. And and that 5-1, obviously, I think most people who are older than 20 years old, in, 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 you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, I mean, that probably is the highlight of watching England, that that 5-1. But we have, we have to temper that um, uh, match. Uh, as fantastic result as it was, we have to remember that Germany went further in the World Cup. They got to the final. We got to a quarterfinal. So, you know... Um, it's, yeah, as Germany do, they they do tend to sort of like, you know, advance, you know, uh, when, when they need to. We we always fall short. Seemingly, we were always seems- at the quarterfinal stage, but but we are are seemingly getting to finals and quarterfinal and semifinals these days. So yeah, we seem we seem to run out of steam uh, in that tournament. Good first half performances, uh, and then up against Brazil. Uh, two one down and Ronaldinho sent off. It should have been our opportunity to get back into the game, and we couldn't see even a single yeah. chance. I think it, it's it was a lot very of, disappointing. I think a lot of people say yes. We seem to run out of steam in tournaments. I think we uh, we 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 tend to um, uh, come up against better teams. That and and you will do that at the, at the, the yeah. business end of a tournament. Uh, uh, don't forget that that in. You know, when we got to a semi-final of a World Cup, uh, we'd uh, we'd we played Colombia and we played um, Sweden um, in in the, in the round of sixteen and quarter-final. So you know, they weren't necessarily the best team. So I mean, I'm not trying to dis- detract from from you know the achievements of that, but we do always like in the last World Cup, we 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 breezed through everything. Uh, uh, except the second game against US, but you know, and until we came up against France, who were a better team, you know, we 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 you know, it seemed to be quite quite simple. So we do England do seem to have that problem that they can't, and this has always been the say, always been the case uh, when it comes to better teams in latter stages of tournaments, we just can't seem to get over that final hurdle. Stephen, can I do an honourable? Can I do an honor, honourable mention for a managerial debut? Yes, of course. It's got to be Sam Allardyce, the man, <laughs> the uh, the only the only England manager with a hundred percent record. I thought you'd go there. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite a remarkable game because it's it's uh, it's it's played in uh, Trevana, uh, Trenava in Slovakia. Um, and uh, even though Mer- Martin Skirtle uh, is sent off in the 57th minute, England contrived not only to um, uh, make things um, make things uh, really difficult for themselves, but they do actually win this game following a 95th minute winner by Alan Lalana. And um, I mean, and then, then um, it's also a game that, that Wayne Rooney becomes the most uh, uh, um, most capped outfield player. That's an incidental, by the way. Um, but Allardyce, this was his first game in charge. And then 23 days later, he is uh, caught um, um, uh, uh, recorded by undercover Daily Telegraph uh, reporters um, trying to get around uh, FA and FIFA uh, uh, rules on player um, um, third-party ownership. So he gets fired after that, uh, which is which is it's quite sad, really. I don't know. I, I, you know, I was, I was never, I mean, Big Sam 
I don't know what he would have brought to the England team, but um, if his debut is anything to go by, it would have been a roller coaster. Let's just say. <laughs> it's interesting to imagine what would have happened if he'd taken the 2018 World Cup. You've bettered what Southgate did. I don't think so. I really don't. I don't know. No, I don't. I mean, you know, no, you can't. No. You don't know. But I, I, I think the way that Southgate has. Palmed. Everything is. We talked about this at the start, didn't we? About how he has become. He's he's made it very boring. Um, but I think he. But also in that he's calmed everything down. So everything is about the football, not about anything else. It's just about the football. Um, and that exact is what, opposite what, of Allardyce. Absolutely, everything <laughs> utterly opposite. Um, so that's my honourable mention for managerial debuts. Glenn, did you want to mention another England managerial debut that we might have missed? Yes. Uh, back in 1977, uh, well, Don Reavy was coming to the end of his, his time. We had a South American tour and the first match of that tour was against Brazil in Rio. Uh, but Don Reavy wasn't there for that game. He took himself off uh, under the guise of going to Helsinki to see Finland play Italy in England's World Cup qualifying group. But what he actually did was secretly fly to the United Arab Emirates uh, and have an interview for the job as their national team manager. So while he was there, uh, Les Cocker was in charge, his assistant. Uh, so maybe Les Cocker has a claim to be another England manager? That's a great start there, Les Cocker. It's interesting that that Don Reavy thing. You're absolutely right. He he was a bit nefarious with the FA. He said he was going to uh, Finland to watch Italy, but he ended up going to the, the the UAE to negotiate a contract. The FA, when they found found out this, not only did they sack him, they banned him from all football for ten years. They they threw the book at him. Um, they they eventually rescinded that, but you know he he, he you know he, he 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 coached the UAE national team until 1980, and then took up a position with um, a UAE uh, thing, and then had a little stint in Egypt, I think. Um, but it was it was, yeah, it was it was pr uh, that was a pretty horrible you know period. In uh, don't forget, England had, had failed to qualify for two world cups as well at that point so it was a really low point of of i think he had, i think he actually resigned from the job he wasn't sacked but uh when he came back uh they played the rest of the tour and then Reavy resigned england were heading out of the world cup mainly as a result i think of italy winning that qualifier in finland that he didn't attend um but it was looking increasingly like England were not going to get to Argentina as they didn't. Uh, so he, he jumped ship. Uh, he left the job. He said, that, I mean, people were horrified at the time, you know, England managers don't quit like midterm. It's not a thing that's done, but he said he was, he, he felt that everyone wanted him out of the job. So he was giving them what they wanted. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a it was a bit of a shambles that whole thing. But again, it, you know, I, I I over the this podcast and the last podcast, I, I kind of like I'm I'm a bit I'm a very anti sort of like FA man really because they were fusty old blokes sitting in conference rooms smoking pipes. You know, lot you know not I mean not really thinking of themselves. I mean, I'm, I'm it it was it was 
I mean, I, I'm not, I don't agree with some of the the, the, the decisions that they made. Uh, and the only best decision, when Adam Crozier took over the FA, inviting Sven, could you imagine that happening in the 80s? Inviting, you know, inviting a foreign manager to come and manage England. I mean, it would have been, it would have been, I, I can't even think in those days what it would have been like. And then we had Fabio as well, Fabio Capello come in. You know, not, oh, that, yes. not that that was uh, well, that was you know fantastic. It was you know a little bit daunting, but it's, at least that was again that was on the, on the back of the fact that we had such a failure with Steve McLaren uh, that we brought another foreign manager in. We couldn't find an English manager to do that because on the back of Keegan we got Sven, on the back of McLaren we got Fabio. You know, so it's you know, you know, it's uh, it's I guess. There are extreme reactions, I guess, I think. I mean, not that, you know, Fabio started well. I mean, I wonderful results in Croatia. 5-1 with, with Walcott mm. scoring a hat-trick. That was absolutely yeah. fantastic. And, of course, you know, Ericsson has the 5-1 in, in in Munich, which, you know, everybody remembers, you know. So, you know, but then then it kind of tails off a little bit. You know, you have that wonderful sort of like... Woohoo! And, and then and then you realise that actually, you know, we're not going to win the World Cup after all. But you know, it was just a flash in the pan, really. Um, nice while it lasted. It was functional. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it yeah, it, 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 yeah, it did what it said on the tin for the beginning, <laughs> and then it all kind of seemed to fizzle out as well. You know, you know, yeah, he was a bit of a disciplinarian, more. wasn't he? Totally. I mean, that's what, what I like about Southgate. He he still seems to command that authority not only with his players but also not and also not with also with the FA but also with the the, the press as well he seems to still be and the public he still seems to be generally liked there is not a a, 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 a plot to oust him I'm sure there are detractors that people think that he's rubbish I'm sure everybody would think that I mean no, there, there, there are always people that, that don't like his tactics and, and think he's not, with the talent that he's got, he should have won something by now. But I think that he's done exceptionally well. And, you know, we're glad to have someone who's got us to a semi-final of a World Cup and also to a final of a European Championship. Yes, and we lost on penalties. I mean, you know, you, you can't manage that. You can't. You can't expect a manager to be able to... I mean, penalties is penalties, isn't it? You might as well flip a coin. And we've always been crap at penalties, but, you know, we all know that. A couple more... That's a whole podcast on its own. <laughs> that is a whole podcast on its own, yeah. A couple of notable mentions as well, just, just before we wrap up. A couple of 3 nils. Glenn Hoddle won his first game, a qualifier for the 98 World Cup against Moldova in Moldova. That's where Nicky Barnby scored the first goal of his reign. David Beckham's first cap. David Beckham's first cap. And who else was who else's first cap on that day? A little trivia question for your listeners. I think it's Andy Hinchcliffe. Hinchcliffe. Andy Hinchcliffe. There you go. <laughs> who who has gone on to surpass David Beckham in his career? Beckham won 115 caps, and Hinchcliffe won seven. There you go. That's a good <laughs> trivia question. Who else? had a debut alongside David Beckham, Andy Hinchcliffe, there you go. And talking of starting well and tailing off, Kevin Keegan won his first game, 3-0 against Poland in qualification for Euro 2000. Steve McLaren won 4-0 against Greece in his first game in charge in August 2006. And to bring it up to the present day, Gareth Southgate, his first game in charge, 
having taken the job on a caretaker basis at this point after the, the fallout with Sam Allardyce, beat Malta 2-0 in a qualifier for the 2018 World Cup. bit more routine, but that brings us up to date with our England managers and England managerial debuts. And hopefully we won't be talking about a managerial debut for a while because that means Gareth Southgate is doing a good job and continues to do a good job for many years to come. Stephen, sorry to interrupt you. I, I have this conversation with my friends down the pub. Listen to previous uh, podcast about what happens down the pub. Uh, <laughs> this is how the England stats started, basically. But I have this conversation with... Um, I have a friend who thinks uh, he, he thinks Southgate's rubbish. Um, and I say to him, OK, well, fair enough, that's your opinion. But if you were to sack Southgate, who would you get to be England manager? Who who do you think, and this is a question for both you and Glenn, who, who do you think, if Southgate resigned or he was sacked, who do you think would be the next England manager right now? I think at this moment in time, there's probably only one candidate. That's Eddie Howe. Uh, because of what he's been doing at Newcastle, he's sort of moved up to that next level, especially in the past season, getting him getting them into the Champions League. Uh, but things do change. I mean, Alf Ramsey took the job. He was the man of the moment uh, back in 1962, having taken Ipswich from the third division to the first division championship in no time at all. So things can change rapidly. Um, in another year's time, or two years' time, if Southgate stays, things might be very different. There could be other people. Uh, Eddie Howe might not be interested in the England job if it came up, but I think he's probably the front runner at the moment. I think you're probably right. That's what I would have said as well. What do you think, Stephen? I'd agree on Eddie Howe. Up until recently, I'd have had Graham Potter in the conversation, yeah. but he's gone to Chelsea from Brighton and it's not really worked out for him. You can argue Chelsea bit of a basket case behind the scenes while he was there, but I think he's going to have to build himself up. I think in terms of an English manager, nobody else is managing at the same level that Eddie Howe is at the moment. Top four finish with Newcastle. He's about to manage in the Champions League and who knows if, if Newcastle can build on the season they've just had. So I think if the job was up for grabs now, it would be Eddie Howe who gets it. Yeah, he's made that progression, hasn't he, from from Bournemouth to uh, top level Champions League. As long as uh, nothing drastic happens in the next two years. The other one, and obviously I, I am a bit biased because he manages my team, but Steve Cooper, with his links with England previously at youth level, he's a mm -hmm. he's an up and coming manager who has that England link. Mm -hmm. Could be another one in the conversation, depending how how he goes. Although. Hopefully it doesn't come to that because I've quite, grown quite attached to uh, to Steve Cooper, I must say. <laughs> He's a good manager, still, Steve Cooper. I do still think that uh, Sam Allardyce has a, a future as uh, as an England manager. I think that he could be drafted in if England are doing really badly and just save them from relegation, if need be. Too late. We've already been relegated in the Nations League. Where was he then? <laughs> we, need Sam. we need Big Sam. We need Big him Sam. Steady the ship. Yeah. Right, chaps. Let's leave it there. And we will draw a line under the England managers and the debut chat. So 
My thanks to Glenn Isherwood. You can visit England Football Online at englandfootballonline.com. And Davy Naylor, you can follow England Stats on Twitter at England Stats or visit the website at englandstats.com. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And, Great. Uh, thank you, Glenn. Great fun. And if you want to get in touch with the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Magnificent Goal or contact us by email on magnificentgoalpodcast at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe and leave a positive review in your podcast provider. This will help other fans and listeners to find our content. We'll be back soon, but until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.